Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your hosts, Natalie Kavorik and Tara Vanderdusen, and together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a mix of entertainment, facts, and trending news articles in the ag and food space. We're ag like you've never seen or heard it before. Welcome to episode 71 of Discover Ag. Today it is just me, Tara, on this episode. Natalie is traveling and could not be with us, but we have an incredible episode planned for you guys. It's Tuesday, so it's one of our advocacy episodes. And today I'm interviewing Dr. Frank Mitlerner from UC Davis. You might know him as the GHG guru on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Mitlerner is a professor and air quality specialist in cooperative extension in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. As such, he shares his knowledge and research both domestically and abroad with students, scientists, farmers, ranchers, policymakers, and the public at large. So welcome to our show today. Hi. We are so honored to have you here. Uh, I feel like on this podcast, we end up talking about UC Davis a ton. Like it's kind of a running joke that like every time we pull up a news article, it's like, oh, UC Davis is doing work, doing research, putting information out there. So we are so thankful for you guys, all of you there at the Clear Center. You guys are doing incredible work to really help bring educated facts, science to this agriculture and climate conversation. Thank you. I'm glad you feel that way. So kind of jumping right into this, uh, we had a lot of questions come in online and a lot of what Natalie and I do here at Discover is try to share factual information with people about cattle and the environment. And as an air quality and livestock expert, we feel like there's obviously no one better that, to talk about this than you. And so I think our first question is really, what role does agriculture and animal agriculture play in our modern food system? Well, that really depends. It depends on... Um, the scope. Are we talking globally? Are we talking in the U.S.? Now, let's talk. Let's start with the U.S. In the United States, all of agriculture combined, so that's animal and plant agriculture combined, make up approximately 10% of all greenhouse gases. 10%. And of that, approximately half of that is animal agriculture, the other half is plant agriculture. The official EPA number, Environmental Protection Agency number, for all of animal agriculture in the United States is 4%. Um, and just to give you a reference as to what the main one is, the main one is really um, all sectors that use fossil fuels, oil, coal, and gas. So that's the transportation sector, power production, and so on. They make up about two-thirds of all greenhouse gases in this country. So I think it's, I'm glad you touched on the global versus U.S. because I think when you're sharing online, I know I personally share a lot of U.S. numbers and I usually try to make note of that because if I don't, in the comment section, it is always from activists, it's always, well, you're not looking at the global numbers, like these are the global numbers. And while I think we do need to be aware of the global numbers, I also think we need to be like giving farmers credit in the U.S. for their lower numbers. Yes, kind of moving to that global conversation, the first place I actually um, saw you, heard from you, was you talking about like the U.N.'s um, livestock's long shadow. And so maybe switching to global numbers, what are some of the, you know, inaccuracies with some of the global numbers and what are they really? Like, what are we really looking at when we see, because I know those livestock long shadows number get perpetually put out there over and over again. Um, and there's just a lot of 
misinterpretation through those data? Yeah, my um, my first contact with these with this uh, FAO Lifestyle Strong Shadow Report was about two years after it came out, um, because people kept asking me. Uh, Lifestyle Strong Shadow says that livestock produces more greenhouse gases than the entire transportation system. So, meaning all cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships. Is that true? And I said that cannot be true. So I analyzed it and found where the issues were. They used two different methodologies of quantifying greenhouse gases from livestock versus transportation. And I critiqued that. I published it in the period literature, and they agreed with my criticism and made some changes. Um, the original number they had was 18% of all greenhouse gases globally coming from livestock. That changed later to 14.5%. And now your listeners might wonder, well, why is that different, that global number, compared to the U.S. number that Frank just shared, which is 4%. It's different because uh, when we talk about um, percentage data, these are always relative numbers, right? In the United States, we have lots of heavy industries, you know, very large transportation sector, and so on. They all burn fossil fuel, and that relatively dwarfs the animal agricultural sector. And that's why it's 4%. Uh, and that's for all beef, dairy, sheep, and so on uh, in this country. In a country like uh, Paraguay, where they have twice as many cattle as people, or in a country like um, Ethiopia, where livestock is the number one economic sector, the relative contributions to greenhouse gases from their respective countries are much higher. In the case of Paraguay, it might be 50%. In the case of Ethiopia, it might be 90%. And if you now take 200 countries worldwide and you average the livestock's contribution to greenhouse gases, then that global average is much higher because there are so many developing countries of the third world with relatively high percentages than a developed country like the United States. That's why there are such big differences, okay? That doesn't mean our livestock sector doesn't produce anything. We shouldn't worry about it. I, You know that I have always been on the record as saying we all need to play our role, uh, and that includes animal agriculture, and if we reduce particularly this one gas, methane, then we can be part of a solution. I really appreciate the fact that you like stand really firm on that because I think a lot of times in the conversation when ag defends ourselves, it's not that we're saying we can't make changes and that we can't do better. I mean, I know in dairy, we have a long track record of actually making really great improvements. A lot of it's through genetics, animal welfare, improved feed. And now I think we're really getting into more of the actual like methane um, being produced and coming, you know, doing digesters and, and tons of different technology. And so it's, it's hard. I feel like it's um, a line we really need to walk in ag that we can acknowledge the part we play and also acknowledge that we're continuing to improve and that we can make improvements um, and that there's misinformation out there about us. And so I think it's kind of all of that combination. And so I really value that perspective that you bring. I also love that comparison. I guess I had never really thought about it in that way that it doesn't mean somebody in Paraguay is producing, that their cows are producing more methane. It's that they're a larger percentage. When you think about that percentage, it's, it's, that's the key there is there, you know, not as many people are driving to work or maybe they don't have as much industry or maybe they're not as focused on consumerism as the United States is and just an abundance of 
you know, consumer products that are obviously having a greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so that's really an interesting perspective. I, I know I would love to get to a point where we looked at greenhouse gases more on a like per unit basis. And even that has its challenges. Like if you look at per unit for a gallon of milk versus a gallon of alternative milk, there's there's issues with that. You know, it would be great if we could compare per protein, um, you know, emissions per gram of protein or something like that. And it all like it gets very like technical in that that area. But the way you described it makes a ton of sense. Um, something else that Natalie and I have talked about, we talked with uh, Dr. Von Holder about this, is how, what is your perspective on, you know, countries that are looking at either reducing or eliminating animal ag? In our minds, a lot of that is just going to push off emissions onto another country. So basically, you're solving a sus- local sustainability problem instead of a global sustainability problem. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and like that real push for ending animal ag. Yeah, so first of all, this push that you're describing um, really comes from a small group, but a small group of influential uh, folks, so oftentimes policymakers. For example, a couple of months back, I was in Ireland, in the country of Ireland, um, and there the discussion was, hey, shall we get rid of a quarter or more of our cows? Shall we depopulate in order to reduce our carbon footprint? And I spoke before the, um, the Irish parliament, And uh, I described what you are asking. Um, So what would happen if, let's say, Ireland were to get rid of a third of their cows? So currently, Ireland exports about 90% of all the meat and milk that they produce. Nine zero, ninety percent 90%. So if you go to the supermarket here in the United States, you will find a lot of Kerrygold and so on uh, butter. It's popular. So if the Irish were to produce a third less um, milk and meat, would that mean that the demand for that milk and meat that they are currently producing and exporting, that that demand would go away? The answer is clearly no, the demand would still be there. And it would be satisfied by somebody else, maybe Brazil, maybe Germany, somebody else. So the cows that they would reduce when they depopulate would pop up someplace else producing the products that are demanded. And that means you would not reduce emissions you would move emissions from Ireland to the other place where that production would be picked up. This is called leakage. Leakage. Leakage does not reduce emissions. It moves it from one place to another. What does reduce emissions is if you, let's say, feed certain feed additives or you put in an anaerobic digester or you select for low methane cows. That reduces emissions permanently And that is a route that I'm behind. But leakage is not getting us anywhere. Uh, That you brought up some of the technologies just now. So maybe let's get into that. What technologies are we looking at of adding to actually reduce methane instead of just moving it kind of around the globe? Um, I know I recently have just started getting into this idea of like breeding for methane reduced cows or I don't I don't even know what you would call them but maybe talk about some of these technologies I know out in California digesters are huge so there's a lot going on so not to be flippant but we all know there are people who produce more methane than other people there are cows <laughs> there are cows that produce more methane than other cows they are low producing methane cows and there are now genomic um, tools to identify um, which cow produces less than others, than her peers. And you can now genetically select for that. 
you can buy a semen uh, that have the trait of low methane. Okay, and um, that is one avenue that is promising because you can use that technology no matter what your production style is, whether you are a, a, grass, a grazing operation or a, a freestall operation or a feedlot, whatever it might be, you can select for that and it doesn't matter what your farm looks like. And so that's very promising. Another one that's promising, and I will visit New Zealand next week, uh, and I will see it there, is <clears throat> that they have developed a bolus. A bolus looks like a pill. You put it into uh, into the rumen of those animals, and it slowly releases a uh, an active ingredient that reduces methane generation. So the New Zealanders are quite uh, bullish about that. Uh, I have to see it with my own eyes, but that would be interesting because you apply it once and then maybe once every six months or so. Um, another one also developed in New Zealand is a methane vaccine. Uh, now, they have been developing this for the last 20 years. I will see with my own eyes how far that has come. All of these things are still uh, on the research uh, or at the research stage, as is or as are the so-called feed additives. And here, a colleague of mine in the Department of Animal Science here at UC Davis uh, and I, we have done research um, looking at the impact of feed additives such as essential oils, tannins, 3NOP, bovair, uh, seaweed, you might have heard of this, Asparagopsis taxiformis from Australia and so on. We have looked at uh, dozens of feed additives and we have found that little under 10 of them are actually doing something. And some actually do a lot in, in reducing enteric methane. That's the methane belched out by those animals. Um, but because of the rules and regulations in the United States, most of them cannot be sold with a label claim of methane reductions without these things having FDA approval. This will likely change. The oversight will move from FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to USDA, and these things will simply be feed additives like the things that we normally feed, like omnihols and cotton seeds and citrus pulp and so on, um, rather than pharmaceuticals. Most of them are not pharmaceuticals in the classical sense. So and then, so this is all related to the animals, what I just described, the, the vaccine, the bolus, uh, the uh, feed additives, uh, the breeding. But on the manure side, and this is the direction California is going, um, on the manure side, uh, our dairies are covering more and more often their lagoons, and the so-called covered lagoon is an anaerobic digester, trapping the gas that normally comes from that lagoon that would go into the air, trapping that gas mix, it's called biogas, 60% of which is methane, and then they convert this biogas into a fuel type for heavy-duty vehicles. It's called renewable natural gas. This conversion of dairy biogas to transportation fuels renewable natural gas, generates a carbon credit, which is very high, so high that it's a high financial incentives for, uh, incentive for farmers to invest in this technology. Uh, we, did, we had maybe 10 anaerobic digesters 10 years ago. Now we have over 200. And that has led to a situation where the very ambitious methane reduction goals that California has for the dairy sector, which is to reduce 7 million metric tons of greenhouse gases. That 7 million metric tons has to be achieved by the year 2030. 
and it's a 30% reduction, um, sorry, a 40% reduction of where we are currently. So the 7 million metric tons um, will be achieved, will have to be achieved by the year 2030. And so far, we already have achieved 2.2 million metric tons reductions. So we have, through the use of these covered lagoons, already uh, achieved one-third of our reduction goal. And the farmers are making money with it because they are getting paid for it. Because in California, we're not using the cane approach of rules, regulations, and fines, maybe taxes, like they do in some parts of the world, like New Zealand and Ireland and the Netherlands. But instead, we use the carrot approach of financially incentivizing methane reductions. In other words, farmers are now getting paid for reducing methane. Sorry for the yes. <laughs> no, that was actually a great answer. I have like so many directions we could go with this. Um, that is something Natalie and I, every time we're covering these stories, we talk about how the incentive approach is just so much better, especially because farming and ranching and dairy farming, it's so regional what's going on, what's happening. And so incentives could be such a better way than just putting like a blanket law regulation tax on people. And I think the incentive base spurs a lot of technology innovation. That's incredible that California is already one third on their way to meeting their goals. Like that's great numbers that should be super exciting for the rest of us. Um, I love that you talked about like the animal side of it at the beginning. I am a manure management expert person like that's consulting. I consult with dairy farmers on that. And so I, my mind obviously always goes to the manure management side of things, but it's interesting to think about just eliminating the problem from the very beginning, like just in the the cattle's like ruminant in their stomachs. Um, so I appreciate you sharing on that. Going, I want to touch just briefly on the idea that one of the things with reducing animal ag in these really efficient producing places, um, I worry about the limiting of technology development. Like you were just saying all of these technology developments in New Zealand. And if, you know, New Zealand implements these taxes or, you know, the cane approach, like you said, on their farmers, well, how much technology will we lose that won't be innovation? And, you know, in the incentive approach in California just spurs that innovation. I think I think all of these things are such great approaches. And I see like so many more coming. Like you said, just 10 years ago, there was very few digesters in California. And now you're making significant impacts on your reduction. So it's really incredible to see kind of those technology advances. Yeah, you know, this... Um this international perspective is really important. Um, you don't really want to lose methane. Methane is nothing other than energy, okay? It's like if you lose methane, about 10% of the energy we feed to cattle is lost by belching of methane, okay? 10%, just going away. That's a loss of energy. Similarly, if our manure storages release methane, that's another loss of energy. This is like leaving your house open in the winter, doors and windows, and the heat escaping, okay? We, who in their right mind would do that? We are doing that if we don't manage methane. We don't want to lose methane. When we do, we lose money. And we have a negative environmental impact. If we do manage methane, then more of what we feed to those animals will be used to produce meat and milk on the one side. And secondly, we have a better environmental footprint. So losing methane not managing methane is a problem if we do manage methane we become a solution because and this is really important if we reduce methane we reduce warming instantaneously 
And this is a difference that this gas has compared to other gases. And that is what makes our sector, the livestock sector, an important part of a potential climate solution because methane is our main greenhouse gas and because methane is so different compared to other greenhouse gases. Yeah, maybe um, now, I mean, I wanted to touch on the methane versus carbon dioxide topic. So maybe now's a good time to what are kind of the differences? I think, you know, in the short form, I kind of know that methane is more powerful. We see that a lot, but it's shorter lived. So what does that actually mean? And what does that mean for agriculture moving forward? That is very true. So the main greenhouse gas in a country like the United States is CO2, carbon dioxide, largely um, a product of burning fossil fuels, such as oil, coal, and gas. Every time we burn uh, gasoline, for example, we put CO2 out. That gas stays in the air for a thousand years. CO2 stays in the air for a thousand years. Now, per molecule, a methane molecule is uh, about 28 times more capable of trapping heat from the sun than one molecule of CO2. So one could say, um, you know, just like there are differences across beverages with respect to the impact on giving us a buzz comparing beer versus wine versus vodka, there are differences in the potency of greenhouse gases. CO2 has the lowest, uh, methane, an intermediate, and nitrous oxide, the highest impact in trapping heat from the sun. But methane, while being 28 times more powerful in trapping heat from the sun, is not just produced by cows and swarms and other things, but methane is also naturally destroyed by a process called hydroxyl oxidation. And this destruction has to be factored in when looking at the impact this gas has on warming. The way that methane is currently quantified by just saying it's 28 times more potent than CO2. Uh, and that's called GWP100. By using this way of quantifying methane, we are overblowing the impact of a constant source of methane on warming by a factor of three to four. In other words, currently, and for the most part, our livestock sector is pretty constant with respect to how much methane it emits. Um, currently, our livestock sector is overblown with respect to the impact it has on warming by a factor of three to four. I've been saying that for years, and I've been frustrated because this has never really been publicly acknowledged that methane is not just produced, but also destroyed. And that's very important when you quantify it. But um, last year, something changed. The Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, the world's leading body on climate, in their so-called AR6 report, this is a global, very hefty report that um, is leading in the world, this IPCC AR6 report confirmed what I just said, that if we quantify methane by just simply saying it's 28 times more powerful than CO2, if we do that, then we are overblowing the impact of constant sources of methane on climate by a factor of three to four. This report now said it, and agriculture needs to wake up to it. And we need to think about, should we continue to use a unit that drastically overblows our impact, or shall we use one that's more scientifically based? Thank God there is one. It's called GWP Star. I have published uh, many papers. Many others have published many papers in this in this field on how to quantify methane now. And uh, there is hope uh, at the horizon that uh, over the next few years, the quantification method for methane will change. Sorry That's for the amazing. long answer, but this is a really important nuance. 
No, that's such amazing news. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we need to be like talking about in ag that we need to be more vocal about. Uh, you know, I don't want it to turn into one of those things that's kind of like kind of like livestock's long shadow that once it got out there, it was so hard to like pull it back in. And so being able to like really be a voice for this and step up and talk about it, I think is crucial for all of us involved in ag. Um, it's, I think it's probably going to take all of our voices like amplifying this and, and being really strong and that that we want to start using this new standard. Um, I also want to thank you. That was a very complicated, obviously, like, you know, we're getting deep in the chemistry on that answer. And yet you're so easily able to relate it back, like with the alcohol analogy, like something that everyone can understand the differences um, and being able to relate that. So I really appreciate you breaking it down for us like that. Uh, One thing that you did mention in that conversation was how ruminants methane have been a part of our like history of evolution of climate in this you know in our world for a really long time so maybe you could kind of go into that that you know what is the history that ruminant animals grazing animals have played um in our ecosystem especially like on you know think about the united states great plains uh introducing ruminant animals is not something new for our great plains yeah so first i want to make very very clear that uh everybody understands that I in no way downplay the importance of methane, okay? It's the opposite. I'm saying methane is a problem if we don't manage it. But if we do manage it, it can be part of a solution. This is a really important nuance, okay? So my research is all about mitigating methane and other greenhouse gases, helping farmers to achieve what's called climate neutrality, where they don't cause additional warming. Now, back to your question. No, I'm glad you talked about that. Uh, one of my big points I know in like when I give speeches is ag being a climate solution, like that we, we need to be proactively going out and addressing this. So thank you for right, mentioning right. that. But, and, and this is not some greenwashing or some creative accounting attempt. This is real, okay? If we reduce methane, we are part of a short, uh, um, an immediate Um, reduction of warming. And that is really something that changes the narrative of livestock and climate profoundly. Okay, this is why it's so important for me to mention it. So now I I get back to what you uh, really asked. And that is how has methane changed over time? So um, about 250 years ago, so before uh, the European settlers really set foot on um, into North America, uh, for the most part, there were about uh, 60, 60, 60 million bison in this country and 40 million large antelopes. So a population of approximately 100 million large ruminants graced the plains of the United States 250 years ago. 100 million. In the centuries since, uh, we have killed off most of the bison, many of the antelope, and they were replaced with domesticated livestock. Namely, with 90, 90, with 90 million beef and with 9 million dairy cows. So, if you do the math, that's approximately 100 million large ruminants. So, if you look at the historical versus present contributions of large ruminants to greenhouse gases, then you will find that when it comes to belching, for example, not much has changed. Okay, These numbers have been uh, very similar over the last centuries. So the difference in human contribution to climate change um, have changed, but largely through the use of fossil fuels and not through the use of large ruminants. On the dairy side, and if we look at a shorter 
uh, time frame here. On the dairy side, back in the 1950s, we had 25 million dairy cows in this country. 25. Today we have 9 million. So we have reduced the dairy herd drastically. But with this much smaller herd today, we are producing 60%, 60 60% more milk than we used to with a much larger herd. And that has shrunk our carbon footprint by two-thirds per glass of milk. On the beef side, at the height, we had 140, 140, 140 million beef cattle. Today, we have 90 million, so much fewer, but we are producing the same amount of beef as before with a much larger herd. One last word. We are, total, we are today producing... 18%, percent 18% of the global beef here in the United States, 18%. And we are using 6% of the total global beef herd to doing that. We are producing 18% of global beef with 6% of the global beef herd. The way that we have been doing business in animal agriculture is the role model and the envy of the world. And it's important that people understand these numbers and this, again, is not some kind of creative accounting. This is just stats. Whoever doesn't believe that shall just contact me and I'll give them the numbers. I um, Those numbers are so impactful. I'm glad you mentioned them here. It's just really crazy to think about how much of the world's beef we're able to produce with such a limited number of cattle. Um, I'm just really like, you know, I feel like all the cattle ranchers should really give themselves a pat on the back for that. Um, one of the things, I think going back to your point before this, so we've been at least consistent with our cattle basically over, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of years or not cattle, sorry, ruminant animals. And I think this goes back to your point of why we can have such an impact in ag if we actually get to carbon neutral, if all of us reduce our methane is because, and you can maybe explain this a little bit better than I can, but it's because of that short-lived methane that we can actually have an impact. Instead of carbon dioxide waiting a thousand years to see an improvement of what we're actually doing now, if we reduce methane now, we can see it in our lifetime be making an improvement. Yes. Let me give you an analogy to make sure everybody understands why CO2 versus methane is so different and how they warm the planet. Okay, I will use as an analogy two bathtubs. The first one is a bathtub for CO2 and how that warms the planet. The second one is a bathtub, um, an analogy uh, showing how methane warms the planet. So imagine as the CO2 analogy, you have a bathtub with a faucet, but no drain. There's no drain. So if you turn that faucet on, then water runs into your bathtub um, and the water levels rise. They will rise no matter whether you turn that faucet on low, medium, or high, because there's no drain. The only direction for that water level is up. And that's what happens with CO2, okay? Every time we burn fossil fuel, we add additional warming to our planet. Now comes the second analogy, the one for methane. Here we have a bathtub analogy where you have a faucet and you have a drain, and the drain is always open. The drain stands for the atmospheric removal, the destruction of methane, okay? The drain is always open. So what happens if you turn your faucet on normal is that you put water into the bathtub, but because the drain is open, an equal amount goes out. As a result, the water levels are stable. If you turn the water faucet on low, then less water is added to the bathtub than is let out of through the drain. And as a result, water levels fall. 
And only if you crank that water faucet on all the way, you're adding more water to the bathtub than the drain can let go of. This is what happens to methane. If you have a constant source of methane, then an equal amount of methane that's produced is also destroyed. As a result, no additional warming. If we mitigate methane through feed additives, manure digesters, and so on, if we reduce methane, then we are supplying less new methane than is being destroyed. And as a result, levels fall, and that causes lower warming. And only if we crank up methane production, for example, by increasing herd sizes, that's not happening in the United States and in most other developed countries, but it is happening in developing countries. If you increase herd sizes, you increase methane over time, and that causes additional warming, and we don't want that. If those countries in the developing part of the world, so Africa and many Asian countries, South American countries, if they need to produce more animal source foods, then we should help them to produce that increased supply through better efficiencies and not just by growing numbers. Because we have shown here in this country and in others that we can produce way more product with the same number or even less animals. We don't want to increase methane over time. We want to hold it constant or even better, we want to reduce it. And we have to help other places in the world that need these technologies today and tomorrow. I agree with you. I think instead of these conversations around reducing animal ag in these developed countries, we should be using our strategy, like what we've done as a playbook and be going out and taking that playbook to other countries in the developing nations um, and helping them get there faster. I think that would be, I'm like, that's the conversation we need to be having. That's where we need to be pushing things um, to go instead of just this constant conversation around like reducing animal ag in places. Yeah, I mean, um, our farmers can do a lot. There's no question about it, okay? Um, and they will do a lot if we use the carrot approach of giving incentives. Then things will happen very fast. But we can't just expect changes to happen, which, which cause higher costs to producers, um, because then the adoption rates will be much lower. So we have to work with our farmers, just like we work with our health sector when we want to address a health crisis. We have, we have today an energy and a nutrition crisis in the world. And our farmers will help in solving both. But in order for that to happen, we have to work with them and not against them. This is really paramount. This is essential. Um, and we have to help other countries that have a significant environmental footprint from livestock. For example, India and Brazil, these two countries have more cattle than the rest of the world combined. Think about that for a second. That is quite a number to think about. Like that perspective is crazy. And, and, and assisting particularly these two countries to improve efficiencies, to install a veterinary system that's uh, really something to speak of, to improve genetics and feeding, would have a tremendous impact on the world's livestock footprint. Um, I want to say one more, uh, one more thing, um, because that's oftentimes underestimated. About 40%, 0 of all the food produced in the developed world is going to waste. 40 40%. 40%. 
This is the stuff. We're not talking about co-products and byproducts. We're talking about the actual crops that farmers produce. 40% of them are wasted. Never make it through human digestive tract. In the developed world, that's happening in our private kitchens and restaurants, at the consumer level, in other words. But it actually is also happening in developing countries of the third world. But there, the 40% is not called food waste. It's called food loss because it occurs mainly at the producer level, on the fields where they can't harvest on time or whether they don't have plant protection uh, available uh, or whether they don't have vaccines for animals and so on. Okay, 40% of their food also goes to waste. This is a global number of 40% of all the food humanity produces today ends up on landfills or rots under the sky, does not have any nutritional purpose, uh, unfortunately. And we can definitely change that, and we must. It's a travesty. It really is. I mean, it's actually, I mean, it's just devastating when you think about that number. Um, I hadn't thought about the same, like that food waste is, it is still food waste in developing countries. It's just different. And I think that goes back to like, we all can continue, like in the United States, we've talked, we just got done talking about like really great numbers. And yet there's tackling food waste in the United States would have a huge reduction on our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And then on the flip side of the coin in developing nations, improving technology, improving access to, you know, all a number of different technologies. Um, And so it's, you know, kind of working at it from all of those different angles to really solve this problem. Um, I, you talk kind of, you mentioned byproducts and we haven't gotten into dairy. Um, we have a little bit of time left. So I want to talk about that, you know, on this podcast and on other podcasts, Natalie and I go on, we spend a decent amount of time talking about, you know, grazing ruminant animals. Um, but I also really love to talk about dairy cattle that are in confined feeding operations, because I think they play a really important part in our, you know, kind of climate conversation and our greenhouse gas reduction conversation because of the byproducts they eat. Um, and so if you maybe just want to share a little bit about that and um, what goes on there, I mean, confined feeding beyond byproducts, confined feeding operations also are kind of the largest player in the digesters as well. So while we <laughs> love our grazing ruminants, um, let's talk about the flip side of that. Yeah. So first of all, I think there's a role uh, for both systems, for the grazing systems as well for the, as, as for the CAFOs. What is so special about ruminant livestock is the fact that they are able to take nutrients nobody else can digest. And because of their microbes in the rumen, they can. So, for example, they are capable of using cellulose, which is a, a polysaccharide. Cellulose is the world's most abundant uh, um, biomass. Nothing is more abundant than cellulose. Nobody can digest it but ruminants. And because of that, these ruminants can make use of two-thirds of all agricultural land in the world. I repeat, two-thirds of all agricultural land in the world. We call it marginal land because you can't grow crops there. And upcycle, not just do they recycle, they upcycle something nobody else can eat, which is grasses containing cellulose, and make it into some of the most nutrient-dense food there is, meat and milk. That is the beauty of the grazing system. It's powered by the sun through the process of photosynthesis. This is, to me, a beautiful thing, okay? These animals are not in direct food competition or feed competition with humans at all. 
Now, and they are often, they're, they're not so often criticized. Uh, Kefus are more often in the crosshair of the critics. And, uh, and here, it's also interesting to note that the vast majority of what they eat is also not human edible. But the vast majority of what we feed to our animals is co-products, byproducts, silage, and other things. So, for example, here in California, if anybody uh, has ever wondered why we have so many dairy cows here in the state, we have the largest dairy herd in the United States here in California. And the reason is that we have so much crop production. We have 400 specialty crops, nuts and vegetables, citrus, and so on and so on. 400 specialty crops producing a vast amount of co-products and byproducts. A very sizable chunk of these co-products and byproducts ends up in our cow's rumen and is upcycled into milk, into meat, and so forth. Um, so about 50%, 5-0 of the, the herd ration, the dairy herd ration here in California is silage. So cereal silage or corn silage or other um, uh, triticale silage and so on. Um, and the other 50% are co-products. So what we feed is almond hulls, cotton seeds, citrus pulps, all of that without cows would end up either on a landfill or be rotten under the sun. Um, but we are taking that, we are taking these feedstuffs, we are running them through the cows and out comes a food product that's not just high in protein. And by the way, that is really important for me to emphasize. Not just high in protein, essential amino acids, for example, but high in so many essential nutrients such as essential minerals, essential vitamins, vitamin B12, iron, calcium, and so on and so on. All of these essential nutrients are in very high concentrations in a glass of milk or in a piece of meat. And that's also often forgotten. These nutrients are much more bioavailable to our digestion, much more digestible than plant-based alternatives would be. So if you ever compare a plant-based meat alternative to a real steak, or if you compare a plant-based drink to real milk, then don't just look at protein. Look at the nutrient package and what our body can do to it, how bioavailable it is. And you will find that we are making a miracle happen by upcycling and recycling so many nutrients into some of the most fantastic food there is. Not just nutritionally, but also with respect to what people like. Let's not forget that. The stuff that we are producing is tasty. That's why people like it. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. I mean, these are products that people want. I mean, when you go to a, you know, a fancy restaurant, I mean, people are ordering steak because that's what they want to have or, you know, other, you know, whatever it is, animal protein. Um, that is what people like. I also love that you did touch on the fact that I don't think people realize how interconnected agriculture is, like the amount of things that, you know, whether it's uh, dairy cattle or beef cattle that we're able to you know, they're able to eat like the leftovers of doing all sorts of different things. Other human food is really incredible. And it's often the part of the conversation that's missed. All of ag needs all of ag. Like we're all interconnected in some way or another um, to make our system what it is, like our food system be the system it is. Um, well, that kind of brings us to the end today. Is there anything else you want to talk about or maybe let people know where they can find you? Because I know that Natalie is our Twitter girl and she loves following you. She finds so many great research and information from you. So maybe just share about where they can find you. 
Yeah, so I'm the director of the CLEAR Center. That's clear.ucdavis.edu. This is our webpage. Um, you'll find a ton of explainers, of blogs, of media um, pieces, um, YouTube, and so on, um, on that webpage. Again, clear.ucdavis.edu. My uh, Twitter handle is ghgguru. And uh, we have a significant uh, number of followers and we would love to grow that further because it is extremely important that people with interest in agriculture and food network better, share more, tell the stories the way they are, not in a greenwashing way, but in a fact-based way. And that is where our hallmark is here in the Clear Center, taking things that are complicated, oftentimes really thick materials, we break it down in ways people can, under can understand. And it's important that your networks share that information. Yeah, and we will definitely share um, the Clear Centers on our Instagram stories. So if you go to at discoverag underscore, we'll share that to our stories so that people can find that easily. And um, I know Natalie will also share some of your tweets on Twitter so that people can find you. So thanks again for being on. Thank you to our listeners. Um, thank you to tuning in to Discover Ag, where every Thursday we cover the top three industry news pieces that you guys need to know in the week. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it or leave us a review. If you want more during the week, you can follow us on Instagram. Find all of this information like we talked about in our stories at discoverag underscore at Natalie Kovorek and at Tara Vanerdeson. See you next week.